as far as we know, Lumpur Chow never visited the holy sites in India. And once or twice people asked him if he was planning to go or why he, why he didn't go. <coughs> and one answer he gave was with a question, can't a Bodhi tree grow in Thailand? The Bodhi tree symbolizes the awakened mind or the enlightenment experience. And many times over his life teaching, Upucha would point to the heart as the place of practice. It's the place that you develop the path that leads to the end of suffering. So wherever you are, wherever your heart is, is where you practice. <coughs> And if you develop the eight factors of the Noble Path in Thailand, then there's the chance to experience awakening and enlightenment there. Or Australia, or wherever. Our task as disciples of the Buddha is to cultivate this path all the eight factors and look after that Bodhi tree. It's the way they refer to the practice. You, you plant the seed and then you cultivate it and you look after it. One of the factors of the path that we're cultivating daily and is very much at the heart of our practice, it's the cultivation of samawayama, right effort. You'll notice that much of the Buddhist teachings refer back to effort, making an effort. The teachings of the Buddha are founded on the basis that human beings can put forth effort to change themselves, to free themselves from suffering, to develop the path that leads to the end of suffering. <coughs> we are beings that can put forth effort. So regularly reflecting on the quality of our effort and how to apply effort skillfully is an important part of the practice. The word for effort we hear most most often in the suttas is uh, viriya, sometimes translated as perseverance or 
persistent effort or even heroic effort. And the picture one gets both from the scriptures and from modern teachers is that one is developing the kind of effort that makes the Dhamma or the qualities of the Eightfold Path invincible to the effects of the kilesas, the hindrances and everything that is rooted in avicca, ignorance, as the, the cause of, of the craving, the attachment that leads to our suffering. In order to really overcome the effects of avicca, we have to develop something that is very strong, long-lasting, long-enduring, and you might say invincible. There's another way of reflecting on your practice on how you might perceive your efforts. Uh, have you reached the stage where you're developing heroic energy and effort in your practice, invincibility in your practice? It's also a point of frustration because Avijja is the very last of the fetters or the mental defilements to be abandoned before one reaches Nibbāna. It's the most deeply ingrained in our consciousness as a conditioning factor, as a cause of suffering. It's difficult to deal with, to root out, to see means ignorance or delusion. It's hard to see, hard to know. Sometimes it feels almost like a black hole that the mind keeps moving, being sucked back towards and therefore keeps experiencing different forms of discontent, suffering. Other times it's like uh, this kind of force that's guiding the hindrances and the mental calaces, a bit like a CEO of some very dark, evil company maybe, or the uh, hard-to-get-to emperor sitting in the middle of the Death Star that you're trying to fight. And we only ever seem to just touch on the outward manifestations of avicca. We see the, a bit of greed, anger, discontent, dullness, you know, the way the hindrances arise. We see them popping up here and there, but deep down underlying, underlying causes. Often we don't really feel we're really touching in our practice. So it can be very frustrating. Which is why we have to develop this strength of mind, this invincibility of mind. Which all the path factors coming together produce 
but we have to keep coming back to effort. It's very much at the core of our daily practice. The one way Lumpur Cha would talk about the development of effort, keep directing the Sangha back to the Apanaka Patipata, the practices that are never wrong. Indriya Sangwara, sense restraint. Bhojane Matanyuta, moderation in eating and generally in the consumption of and use of the requisites. And Chakaryanu Yoga, that devotion to putting forth effort, awakening the mind, practicing. There are, of course, many different formulas and ways the Buddha or our teachers talk about developing effort. This is one very practical set of formula that we can remember easily and applies to our daily practice. And we're constantly looking and learning how to arouse effort in the practice, how to practice restraint, how to understand the right level of consumption in the things you consume and so on. Every day this is part of what we do. The formula for right effort in the Eightfold Path, I'm sure everyone's familiar with, it's the basic practice of preventing unwholesome mental states arising or if they've arisen, the abandoning of them and the bringing up into existence of wholesome mental states and the maintaining and development of those wholesome mental states once they're in the mind. Four right efforts And we're developing them on an ongoing basis. So Vasa, three months period, is a very good time to really learn about how you approach this, how you approach the development of the four right efforts. The one thing many monks have done over the years, seems to be quite successful, is write a journal, an honest journal, diary of how one's efforts in the practice have gone through the vasa day by day. That might include writing down what particular hindrances are coming up mostly on a particular day, whether it's all of them or one in particular, and what practices one does to overcome them what effort one makes, what methods work, what methods don't work. All of us have been educated so we know how to write, read and write, and we put a lot of effort into that in different ways in our life. So sometimes it's interesting just to actually put that 
skill to use in the cultivation of right effort, getting to learn about yourself, getting to know what particular hindrances come up more often than others, <coughs> getting to know what triggers them, what stimulates them, how long they bother you for, and then how do you free yourself from them, what overcomes particular hindrance, what has worked for you in the past. If you write it down, then you, you've got something to refer to. At first, such a task might be seem daunting, so it's obviously it's not a compulsory practice. It's just one way to become more aware of yourself and your efforts, and to be honest. How much we eat, how much we sleep, how much we meditate in the formal way, sitting and walking through a day how we apply ourselves to chores, the chores that we are assigned, and the way we do the chores here, most of the chores are done alone. So you're given complete responsibility and freedom to do the chores when you want. But that, of course, can lead to problems, and some monks don't actually do the chores they're assigned to. Or what is the attitude that you have when you do the chore? Do you do it begrudgingly or in a half-hearted way or are you doing it in a whole-hearted way? How much you sleep from day to day, how does it change? How many hours at night do you take and sleep in the middle of the day? How much you eat, whether you take an evening drink or not, whether you take a, a drink in the morning or not. This can be a very useful way of getting, building up a picture of our own habits and to get, to find out, to see with some of the triggers and causes for the arising of hindrances. Lumpocha encouraged the practice of Indriya Sangwara, sense restraint, because it's your, like, your first, uh, skill or first defensive skill in, in preventing the arising of hindrances. You know, when we meditate, we're spending so much time dealing with the hindrances. It only makes sense to sometimes put a lot of effort into preventing them from arising in the first place. And the way you get the information and you learn about yourself is putting effort into sense restraint bringing up mindfulness with sense contact. Some people go to the extreme and think of that it must mean cutting off all sense contact and become very sort of strict in not allowing any contact with the world in various ways. Of course it's impossible to do that completely but to limit sense contact <clears throat> is possible and we're doing that by living in the forest already. We're reducing the amount of impingement on the senses. But even more vital to the practice is developing mindfulness with sense contact and some wisdom around how we use our mind with sense contact. 
And whether you're in the forest or in the city, there's always the, the chance to indulge the senses. And indulgence isn't always um, pleasure-seeking. Uh, we also experience displeasure through our senses, which can be a cause for indulgence. Unwise attention to unpleasant experiences of sight, sound, taste, smell, touch, or memories. Generally, it comes more as a more more practice to be done with limiting and developing mindfulness with pleasurable sense contact, because it's more alluring, more has more of a hold on the mind. Generally, so learning to pay attention to your sense contact, pay attention to what you're looking at what you're tasting as you eat or drink, what, you, what you're smelling, what you're hearing and so on. The aim being to learn where the, what triggers the hindrances of sense, desire and ill will. particularly sense desire and ill will, because they come up so often in our meditation. How often in, as you meditate are you dealing with memories of past pleasant experiences that trigger uh, fantasies and more desire and plans to experience more of the same, battling with, with sense desire that's just holding the mind preventing it from settling down on your meditation object. Some of that could maybe have been prevented through the wise practice of sense restraint and wise reflection in daily life. You know, when we lose our mindfulness, the, we go towards unwise attention to the objects of our senses. So sense desire and ill will arise through unwise attention. You're looking at something or some person <clears throat> with unwise attention <clears throat> we dwell on the attractiveness of what we see the attractive signs in what we see or hear or the unpleasant signs depending on the kind of kalesa that is being triggered So every day we have the opportunity to learn from our sense contact. It's the, the interaction of this mind with the world, the material world, but also the mental world. It's where kilesas are being stimulated most, most frequently, most often. That's where we learn. Of course, sometimes mindfulness is not on the ball, it's not there. The gatekeeper is having a nap, and so the kalesas are stimulated by sense contact and the hindrances arise. So then it's a practice of dealing with them once they've arisen. And a lot of meditation is 
very frustrating and tiring because of this. But we have no option but to keep refining that skill. Learning to see what works for you personally as a strategy once sense desire arises, once ill will arises, dealing with drowsiness, dullness and inertia, dealing with restlessness and agitation or doubt. What skills have you developed so far? And even to be looking into what further skills you still need to to develop. Sensitive desire is undermined by the reflection on Anicca, Anicca Dukkha Anatta, but particularly Anicca. It's a very accessible contemplation. It's contemplating the temporary nature of whatever the object of your desire is. You have that at your fingertips ready when the mind falls into just unwisely dwelling on the attractive side of something, the fantasy, the imagination. You learn to bring in the reflection on impermanence somehow, bring it up to undermine the the way the mind gives value and importance to that desire. Break it down into its component parts, particularly the objects of lust, but just desire for food or pleasant objects. Break it down into the four elements, the component parts. Reflect on the unattractive side of food, of a certain requisite you may be wishing for. Everything has its opposite side. It's for us to turn our mind to to reflect on that. This is where we require effort to turn your mind away from what it seeks pleasure in and is stuck to, is used to thinking about turn it away to learn something more, to gain some further insight and wisdom so it will start to relinquish its hold on the mind. That object will relinquish its hold by by undermining it, seeing its impermanence or its unattractive side. That's right effort, putting effort into doing that, removing a hindrance from the mind. Bringing up metta when there's ill will requires effort. Once you've recognized that the ill will is there, then that effort to turn the mind to something that's better, something that brings more calm, bringing up tolerance or kindness towards the object, if it's ill will. Our aim is to get to the point where these strategies, these techniques we have are well used so that we can quickly abandon the hindrance, not to waste time with it, not to waste mental energy with it, because that undermines our whole purpose in the practice. If you find yourself getting frustrated, disappointed in your meditation, 
it'll be because the hindrances are winning, they're overwhelming you. One of the best ways to arouse more effort in the practice is have a few victories where you've actually applied some wise reflection or some effort and been able to let go of a, a hindrance. Some of the other ways to deal with the hindrances just see the suffering that it causes and to develop the perception that you know, these are something that are not good for me. It's not in my interest to follow sense desire, ill will, drowsiness, anxiety. In their nature they're taking away our clarity, our happiness. <clears throat> they really are enemies of our peace and happiness. They're not people, they're just mental states that come through unwise attention. So as we establish mindfulness, we reflect on the, the unattractive, the ugly qualities of the hindrances. And they say when when you see a hindrance for what it is, you know, the mind shrinks away from it because it knows this is a cause of suffering. Just like somebody who is about to go out and they check themselves in the mirror and they realize they've got a dead snake hanging around their neck. That immediate sense of revulsion, just wanting to take the dead snake off. No one would keep a dead snake hanging around their neck. And when a hindrance is seen for what it is, there's a certain revulsion in the mind. But this isn't coming from ill will or aversion. It's the natural <clears throat> reaction of a well-trained mind. It starts to shrink away, be repulsed by the hindrances because you know they only lead to suffering. And you don't want them in your mind anymore. Sometimes that's enough for you to just shake it off. Again, it takes effort. You wake your mind up, get the clarity and see the hindrance and just shake it off. Let it go. Sometimes we have to just keep investigating and as long as you're, you are investigating, you're developing some ways, some wisdom around the hindrance, how it arises, starting to see it as a hindrance. Already that's a small victory. The, the power of the hindrance over the mind is slightly undermined, even if it keeps returning. You now have some pathway some way of practice that you can keep applying and little by little mindfulness can be established. And the hindrance is seen as a hindrance, as an object of mind that can be abandoned rather than just always giving into it and feeling disappointed with oneself for giving into it. And this is where you need the, the heroic side of the effort, just being willing to keep applying the mind, 
to look and learn from the, the effects of the hindrances and how to undermine them and how to abandon them. If you keep going, every hindrance can be abandoned. We know that because the Buddha and our teachers have done that before. So we need to develop that kind of heroic effort. Occasionally it's a physical thing. You just keep sitting, keep walking, not give in to the desire to go to sleep or seek out distraction. But more it's a mental effort that may not manifest very obviously on the outside, but on the inside you're developing strength of mind and not giving in to the hindrances. Another strategy we sometimes have to employ because we're dealing with the hindrances every day is what you might say is wise distraction. Part of our lifestyle does involve doing different skillful activities, activities of dana, service, that can be a useful way to redirect energy when you are under the influence of hindrances. So if you're sitting alone in your kuti, full of lust or anger or feeling depressed, well, this is the time where you can seek to minimize the effect of that hindrance by putting forth effort into a useful distraction chores that we have to do, learning the Dhamma, learning chanting, <clears throat> wise conversation with friends and so on, but particularly you know, skillful tasks that we can do, looking after our requisites, tidying our kuti, chores that we can do around the monastery, can be a very skillful way to abate quiet in the mind when it's under the influence of the hindrances may not yet be quite the have the quite the qualities of mindfulness and wisdom to abandon the hindrance but it, it weakens the hindrance by putting the mind onto something else so a healthy wise distraction the buddha even allowed for suppression sometimes you really just grit your teeth and not give in Again, you might say wise, wise or mindful suppression of a hindrance when you know it's only leading to harm. In particularly, say, strong anger. You rather than have an argument or cause a lot of negative karma with another person or rather than destroy something, you just clench your fist, bite your teeth together and just walk away. Sometimes suppression is the correct thing. If one is overcome by lust, obviously not to indulge that lust, but to walk away or do something and just really fight it. We're learning a whole range of techniques. They all come under the practice of right effort, preventing the hindrances arising or abandoning them if they have arisen. And you're refining these techniques you simply say, oh, just meditate more, sit more, walk more. Well, that may generally be the right thing to do, but we have to look at the quality of our effort as we're sitting, as we're walking. 
then we have to adapt our effort to see what's, what's needed at a particular time. On the positive side, there's the development of skillful, the skillful states. Often that's summarized as the, the seven factors of enlightenment. Establishing mindfulness, wise reflection, putting effort, energy into the practice, with this as a cause, tranquil, uh, pity, rapture and joy, interest in the practice, in the meditation, increases, this supports tranquility of body and mind, the stillness of samadhi and the equanimity, upeka. Often our teachers summarize this as just more mindfulness, but it really is referring to all seven factors of the of enlightenment. But mindfulness is the key. Once you establish mindfulness, there's an opportunity to learn and reflect on the Dhamma wisely. Once those two qualities are there, then the mind starts to enjoy the practice more. When you have a little bit of self-control and you can learn from your experience, then you can find it interesting more enjoyable. For this you might base your practice on what's worked before. Like many monks have found, you know, if you have a lot of hindrances bothering you, then it is correct just to go off and just walk meditation until you walk them off. You just keep putting effort into mindfulness of walking, mindfulness of the posture, mindfulness of a certain meditation object, and just walk and walk and walk and walk until that hindrance subsides and a state of calm comes up, and then the practice becomes more enjoyable again, more interesting. The mind is calmed down. Other ways that bring us to turn back to mindfulness, hearing the Dhamma, reflecting on the Dhamma, reflecting on the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, developing those skills where you know when you are caught into the hindrances, you're stressed, you're suffering, you're depressed, you're distracted. Again, have some strategies how to revive the effort to establish mindfulness. In brief, right effort is the effort to bring up mindfulness. When we're enthusiastic, faith is there, then it's easier. When there's no faith, what do you do? How do you establish mindfulness when your faith seems to have drained away? Or physically you're tired? These are the kind of skills we're learning. Often when we are tired or our mindfulness is weak, then we become prey to the, the, the seeking out of distraction. That's often when we seek out to socialize, 
seek out entertainments, just anything that will distract our mind, take away, take it away from itself, away from the body. So going back to sense restraint, just being willing to limit that, not to indulge the desire for distraction all the time, because it only weakens the mind, undermines your practice. So we're having a lot of patience, patient effort, being willing to stick with the practice even though the mind is weak, distracted at times, just being willing to stick with it patiently until you can summon up mindfulness again. Well, you notice in particularly senior monks who practice for many years and have had good experiences in their Dhamma practice, you know, there's a certain effortlessness that comes into their practice the more they do it. You know, like any branch of life, you know, any skill, knowledge, that people develop, the more you train, the more you practice, the more you can do it effortlessly. You know, like driving a car, learning a musical instrument, a sport, whatever. In the beginning one has to train a lot, practice a lot, and it seems to require a lot of effort. But as you get better at it, then at least to the outside observer, it seems much more automatic, more normal for the person because they've gained that skill. So our practice is much the same in the way that we can preserve the wholesome dhammas in our mind and increase them and develop them is because there is a certain ease that comes the more we practice. We get used to it, we know what we're doing, we know how to maintain the mind, so it takes less effort, less energy. It's not such a battle. There may still be battles to be fought, but it's not so such a strain. So that's reflected you know, in one's way of being. There's a certain enjoyment in the practice, relaxation in the practice, as one develops more skill in how to apply effort, bring it up and how to deal with the obstacles, the hindrances. You might say this is the fruits of the practice. As you do it more, in the beginning it is a challenge. It's a constant stop and start experience where you have some, put some effort in, seem to get somewhere and then seem to be back back at square one, back at zero in no time at all. It's very frustrating. But if you trust in the process and you learn to apply your effort skillfully, then over time that skill will stick. And the effort, bringing up a right effort does get easier because we understand why we do it, how to do it better. You gain from your practice, you gain wisdom. So you 
recognize hindrances much more quickly and you understand the situations and the conditions that give rise to them. So it doesn't take so much effort to avoid them or abandon them. As the mind experiences more wholesome states, more skillful states, it's much happier in itself. And that happiness is a gift, a gift to us, a gift to others. Often we, ourselves or the people in society, question in the monk's lifestyle, why do you have to live in the forest? Why do you have to be secluded, why can't you be in the world more? Well, there's no way around it. You know, to train in the right efforts does require a certain amount of seclusion. You have to devote a lot of energy and attention to your mind to overcome the hindrances, to develop the factors of enlightenment. It's, it's harder out in the world. There's more distraction more temptation and so on. But as you practice, you can give more back to the world because you've, as you learn, you learn how to internalize, internalize this practice and not only, as I say, in the beginning you depend on the physical seclusion, but as you practice more, you have more mental seclusion from the causes of suffering. You're happier in yourself and then you can be stronger in yourself, more reliable, more self-reliant and more peaceful. So as equanimity arises, you know, the mind is more able to cope with what the world has to bring at it. So then you can give more back to the world. It doesn't bother you so much. If we rush out to the world too quickly, then, and we haven't developed those skills, then the practice tends to collapse very quickly. Not much mindfulness, not much wisdom. So I'd encourage you all to really use the Vasa. We have three months to really learn about yourself and be honest where your strengths are, where your weaknesses are and what's happening day by day. If you don't write it down already, just make mental notes every day. What's happening in your mind? How much effort are you putting into your practice? What hindrances are coming up? What things particularly bother you? What are you doing about it? What effort are you putting into abandoning those particular hindrances? So I'll leave you with these reflections tonight. <laughs>